Welcome to the SEC Bowl Preview 23-24 edition of the show. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter.com at Braden Gall. And I'm Stephen Lassen. You can follow me on Twitter at Aflon Stephen. You can also follow me on YouTube, all CFB365 and Stephen L. CFB on Instagram and Facebook. There you have it. Um, of course, if you are listening on the podcast, please head over to the 440 Sports YouTube page. That's 440 Sports. And give us a subscription there on the YouTube page. We do really, really appreciate it. Um, every single one of these game previews will be up on the website there, up on the YouTube page. So please go check that out. We do appreciate it. We're going to roll through every single SEC bowl team and bowl game and give you a preview for each and every one of them. Something important to watch. The matchups are difficult to analyze. The point spreads are stupid to gamble on. We'll talk about the two college football playoff games, which are real football games. Uh, but we're going to try to give you guys something to watch and pay attention to in each one of these games for every SEC team and every future SEC team, Texas and Oklahoma. So we will work chronologically, Stephen, and we will start with the earliest games and work our way all the way to the final bowl game of the SEC schedule, which is, of course, future team Texas versus future Big Ten team, Washington. So we'll do that. Uh, so that's what's coming up on the show today. Otherwise, uh, uh, happy holidays to everybody. I hope everybody's having a great holiday season. Okay, we'll start. Stephen Lassen, are you ready? I am ready. Let's fire away. Wednesday, December 27th, the Tax Act Texas Bowl in Houston, of course. This is Texas A&M against Oklahoma State, two former conference rivals in the Big 12. Oklahoma State is a two-point underdog in this one. Of course, Mike Elko taking over as the brand-new head coach, has a brand-new everything uh, as it pertains to the Texas A&M staff. Uh, that number one recruiting class in the nation that was there, number one recruiting class ever in the history of recruiting, is now a third of that is about gone into the portal. We don't know exactly how many are going to be gone permanently or who's going to be there. Um, obviously, Connor Wigman is is still a, part of the, a big part of the future of this organization, but not a whole lot of things that we know about what this Texas A&M team is going to look like in this, again, old Big 12 rivalry game. Yeah, the, the big question for this game is who exactly is playing for Texas A&M? And I think also fair to wonder about motivation. I think with the coaching change and all the personnel turnover, I think it's a theme of bowl season. We will see some younger players who shine because they're in the spotlight probably for the first time this year getting a chance. But for Texas A&M, they had kind of a disappointing season. What do we expect in a game where Oklahoma State's probably going to be a lot uh, more at full strength, where A&M is going to be missing several guys on defense? We know Anaya Smith, uh, Evan Stewart also not going to play in this game. I think if you're looking for a matchup during the regular season, A&M was outstanding against the run. Defensive front, sure, some guys have transferred, some guys have uh, already been or out due to injury. Their front still, there's still a lot of talent on this defense. So I think the question here is for A&M's defense. Elijah Robinson, interim coach, they've played well under him. This defensive front, can they slow down Ollie Gordon and that Oklahoma State rushing attack? You know, I think for Oklahoma State, that's really the key. We saw this in the Big 12 championship game. You take away Ollie Gordon. Their defense really is just okay. Alan Bowman, can he carry them to a win here? I think that's the that's the goal for AM. Take away Ollie Gordon and force Alan Bowman to beat you. I mean, every single one of these games is going to be about motivation. That's hard to pinpoint for every team. But you do have sort of, again, these players love Elijah Robinson. There's no question about that, who, of course, is off to Syracuse. Um, they love this guy. And so there's a there's a chance that they are rallying around his their relationship with him. There's also sort of a lot of very like when Mike Elko got the job, part of the reason that I think you and I both really love the hire was, look, he's going to step into a roster loaded with talent. Maybe it's not as loaded as we expected, but it's still pretty well set up for future success. And so the new sheriff in town kind of thing, how many of these guys are going to use this as an audition to try to earn their spot in Mike Elko's future Texas A&M Aggies? How, how new is the, the organizational structure and, and culture? I find that to be very interesting. So there's a chance that Oklahoma State is just more fully formed and more together on this, and that's why they win. Um, there's also a chance that uh, Texas A&M just has way more talent. <laughs> I think in a name that you you probably would have thrown in the conversation is, hey, here's a young player who has either played well or he could continue to progress during the bowl season and maybe make things interesting is Jalen Henderson, a quarterback for Texas A&M. I think kind of an unheralded transfer. I thought he played pretty well down the stretch after Connor Wigman got hurt and he had some other injuries with Max Johnson. But 
I, I think it's Connor Wigman's job to lose next year, but if sure. he plays well in this game, you know, it, we start talking maybe a little bit more of a, a conversation about the battle, but I think it's a, it's a spotlight game for him. It's a spotlight game for the young players there. And it's yeah. a spotlight game for Ollie Gordon over at Oklahoma state against an outstanding defense too. And, and of course, inside the state of Texas with everybody in the state of Texas watching uh, as, as the conferences change in turn, I Henderson was kind of a breath of fresh air at the end of that, that, that whole deal. It's almost as if Jimbo Fisher should have realized that quarterbacks that are mobile can be valuable. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I know he did good things with Kellen Mond at the end of his career, but um, Henderson was pretty good down the stretch. Um, but you know, how much of that was the the coaching staff and sort of the 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 relief of like all the pressure being gone off of the staff being re- relief removed and everything. So we'll see. It should be very interesting uh, to keep track of. Um, okay, so let's go to Thursday. Thursday, December 28th, the Valero Alamo Bowl, which I'm not sure where the Alamo Bowl is going to get future participants uh, since they have a contract with the Pac-12 and the Pac-12 no longer exists next season. Uh, Arizona versus Oklahoma, two very different teams entering the season on two very different trajectories. Of course, Oklahoma entering the SEC next year. I was a little surprised to see Arizona as a three-point favorite in this game. Certainly Dylan Gabriel not going to play for the future SEC Oklahoma Sooners. You've got uh, Fafita for Arizona, who is a rising star in this game, potentially for Arizona, and Jed Fish, who's done a great job this year. This is a fa- this has always been a really fascinating bowl game. Some of the craziest scores, craziest outcomes, and craziest comebacks. Uh, coaches changing shirts at halftime, etc. It, it makes for really good entertainment, and I think we're in for a really good and entertaining football game between Arizona and Oklahoma. It's almost like it's the old holiday bowl where you can almost just like pencil in a high scoring game. I think this time with um, with Oklahoma and Arizona, it's sort of like the old holiday bowl. It's got that kind of feel for it. It's also if you, if you just boil the matchup down to just sort of a regular like thought, it's a future SEC team playing a future Big 12 team. It's just such a weird time of the year and, and, and what's going on to next season. But one of the themes of bowl season, I think, is going to be. Young players stepping up into the spotlight. I really like Noah Fafita, the quarterback at Arizona. They've got a lot of weapons around him. Uh, McMillan, Jacob Cowing. Spotlight game for Arizona in this matchup against an Oklahoma secondary that has had some issues this year against the past. On the other side of things, if you start looking ahead to next year with Dylan Gabriel transferring, you know Jackson Arnold is the guy for Oklahoma. This is our first chance to kind of see him in extended action. He played some of BYU and he played some other in some other games, but he's getting the start here. He's going to have all that time to prepare. So I'm yep. excited to see how he performs because that will give us a better idea of what to expect out of him next season. Of course, we don't want to read too much into bowl games, but I do think as far as entertainment value goes, I think this one could be one of the more entertaining, like high scoring back and forth games. And I think to your point on the spread, Probably Arizona being favored says something about some of the personal losses that Oklahoma has at this point. Yeah, no question about it. I, I do think Brent Venables does not want the the optics. I know optics can be very overrated, but I don't think Brent Venables wants the optics of coming into the SEC having lost to a Pac-12 team that's going to be a Big 12 team while he's playing his last game in the Big 12, which is, of course, just a, a wonderful oddity of college football. Um, but I do think this this story with Jackson Arnold is one of the most important things that we're going to talk about all show long, which is w- when you have a chance to be given the reins in practice as the number one, it's a it's very different than like coming off the bench in a game or even like two days before the game being told you're going to be the starter when you sort of get you know you're the number one guy, you know you're the starter for 15 straight practices running with the ones game planning with the coaching staff as the starting quarterback, I think it is a very different mental headspace. Uh, He's a very talented kid. Certainly Dylan Gabriel. We know Oregon's throwing cash around, and that's maybe why Dylan Gabriel is out in Oregon. But at the same time, I think Oklahoma was clearly okay with this uh, because they think Jackson Arnold's the future. So he is by far one of the most intriguing players of the entire bowl season, for for me at least. I always like watching young quarterbacks, whether it's Jackson Arnold or – Fafita, because it's to your point, they are having the whatever you get 15, 12, how many practices you can fit in. You get that extra work and you get to prepare for the starter. It just gives us kind of a glimpse um, for next season. So I think the two quarterbacks in this game are where I've got my eyes. And I also just think any kind of skill talent, because I think both these defense, you look at them statistically, 
been pretty solid, been a little shaky at times, but I think this could be uh could be fairly high scoring in the Alamo Bowl. A lot of intrigue for me in this one. I think I would take Oklahoma plus the points, but that's 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 me doubting Jed Fish at my own peril. So are 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 <laughs> so. is the betting uh public maybe a little too uh, optimistic on Arizona just because Oklahoma's missing a starting quarterback. I, and I think Venables is going to have something for him in the defense in the front seven. So we'll see. We'll see. I think it's going to be, yeah. I think, I think it's one of the more interesting and entertaining football games of the entire bowl season though. I do think that. Um, all right. Friday, December 29th, the tax slayer Gator bowl in Jacksonville, Clemson versus Kentucky. Kentucky is a four point underdog here. This game to me would have been incredibly important to Mark Stoops. In, it, had they lost to Louisville, like I think that is a like if they if th- there was some momentum and some positive growth off of that lo- off of that win over uh, arch rival in the state. Now they've got a chance. I think they could really shape this season in a very different way than how it was kind of unfolding in like November for Kentucky. And I think you know they've already got into the portal to go get Brock Vandergriff. I I just think Clemson. I have no idea what to expect of Clemson's motivation here. I, this is an opportunity. I, again, to your point, we don't read too much into bowl games and their results, but I think there's an opportunity here for Mark Stoops in Kentucky to right the ship a little bit, kind of quiet some of the noise, the Texas A&M stuff, and just sort of say, you know what? Look, we're still a pretty darn good football program, and to go beat Louisville and Clemson, who are both ranked and high and have better quote unquote better seasons than you, I think this is actually a pretty big opportunity for Kentucky. Yeah, I think so too. I think the the Louisville game was sort of a vibe changer. Uh, for Kentucky and Mark Stoops, because had they lost that one, then of course you have all the rumors, but is he going to A&M or not? Now the talk is, well, they beat Louisville. Uh, there's, you know, Mark Stoops is staying. They've got these, they pretty solid transfer class coming in. So that win was a vibe changer. Now they, can they go into this game and kind of continue that momentum? I don't think the matchups in this game favor Kentucky though. I think, no. uh, yeah, from a, just, just a basic football analysis here, Clemson's very good against the run. Uh, I think Ray Davis and it'll be tough sledding for Kentucky's rushing attack here. Devin Leary has been inconsistent as a passer. Clemson secondary is very good. You could flip it around. Uh, You know, Kentucky has been vulnerable against the pass. I think Cade Klubnick, he's been up and down. This could be a spotlight game for him. Kentucky is very good though against the run. And that could be bad news for Shipley and Maffa. So I think just on a vibe level, it could, it could be an opportunity for Kentucky to continue that. But also, I don't think the matchups really favor them here. It is an opportunity for guys like Ray Davis and Devin Leary to go out on a high note, though. Um, some, especially for Leary, more ups and downs this year. Uh, who's obviously Devin Leary, former ACC player, very familiar with with Clemson. Um, wasn't he responsible for that big win in overtime two years ago against Clemson, yes. I believe? Mm-hmm. I, what's interesting is like it's almost like which offensive line like has the least inconsistencies. <laughs> like neither yeah. one of these offensive lines have like, they've had some discipline problems, penalties, untimely situational, you know, lack of awareness on both these groups. The Clemson offensive line just hasn't been all that great. Um, they're significantly better on defense. It's kind of similar to what Kentucky has been under Mark Stoops over the last few years. I, I would, I would imagine that Kentucky's motivational factor here is slightly greater than Clemson's motivational factor. If Dabo Sweeney, though, wants to shut people up, this is a pretty big one for him, too. Because, again, while bowl games are not that important from a result standpoint, they do shape the offseason conversation. And Clemson losing, even though they beat South Carolina and kind of did it in, like, a very Clemson-ish kind of way, I, I think this is... There's a there's an offseason conversation here for both these coaches if Kentucky wins that really doesn't bode well for, for Dabo's... Uh, Talk talk radio shows in down in South Carolina. Yeah, and especially because I think the the, the off season narrative was going to be well, Clemson might use the portal a little bit more. I'm still you know that they may add some guys, but some of the top prospects I think that were it would have made sense here didn't they haven't panned out or they didn't even consider Clemson. So I think the good for Clemson was they finished the season playing better. Notre Dame win the win over South Carolina. They could finish here on a high note, but at the same time though, I think playing in the Gator Bowl kind of another disappointing end to the season. They lost, yep. of course, last year to Tennessee uh, in the Orange Bowl. So going back to Florida to play an SEC team. All right, let's move on here. Friday, December 29th, uh, kind of early in the SEC slate to get a big one like this. The Goodyear Cotton Bowl in Arlington, Missouri, and Ohio State. Uh, Missouri, 
a one-point favorite over Ohio State, which is a shell of itself on offense from an NFL talent standpoint slash quarterback transferring away standpoint. Uh, I'll get I'll get your thoughts on what you you make of the Ohio State offense. I, listen, this is a chance for Missouri to cap off a magical season. It has been a great year for the Tigers. They you know they've got a, a fantastic collection of, of of offensive skill weapons around Brady Cook. It's been a great season in Columbia. They have eyes on a playoff spot next year. And and I think they could be absolutely a top 15 preseason team next season. But I also think this is historically one of the greatest seasons in school history. And if they I think the motivational factor here to to knock off a program, a brand like Ohio State and to do it in the Cotton Bowl is just an unusual circumstance for Missouri. And if they use that as motivation, I, I assume that is why they are a favorite along with the fact that all of Ohio State's best offensive players are not going to play. But I, I, to me, I don't know where Ohio State's head is on this. You lose a close game to Michigan. You get left out of the playoff. You're kind of an afterthought in the playoff postseason, but you still get a big bowl game. I, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of reasons for Missouri to play very well in this game. Agree with you. I, I think if you go back to a couple years ago, Ohio State, then they lost to Michigan, played Utah in the Rose Bowl. And they got off to a slow start that day. They ended up yeah. coming back to win. But it looked like for about a quarter or two that they were going to get handled by Utah in that game. So I think it is fair to say motivation is going to play a huge role in every game, but certainly this one. Because I think we saw yeah. this theme from Missouri this year. You know, I think Eli Drinkwitz, maybe it was after Kentucky, said, why stop now? That's the theme for Missouri. Why stop at 10? Go win 11. Go win the Cotton Bowl. Guys like Cody Schrader, some other key seniors on defense. This is their last game at Missouri, trying to cap off that this magical season with another victory. On the other side of things, you got a lot of questions here for Ohio State. Quarterback, uh, who is going to actually play for Ohio State is a question. Their defense is very good, but just a ton of motivation questions. Like you said, the loss to Michigan, they didn't play in the Big Ten Championship game. They're in the Cotton Bowl against, I think, a very motivated Missouri team, which I don't think is necessarily the greatest recipe here uh, for Ohio State. So I, motivation is a, is the biggest X factor in this game for me. I, I actually like Missouri to win. And if this was a, if this was a playoff game and we were actually breaking it down, Kyle McCord was in there, hadn't transferred away. Marvin Harrison Jr. is in there. All you know, the the Ohio State defense is one of the best in the country. But I actually think Missouri's offense showed us throughout the course of the year that it could line up and scheme against some of the best defenses in the SEC. So I, even if this was a fully formed Ohio State team in a playoff game with meaning, I, I still think Missouri would would actually hang above its talent level with Ohio State because Ohio State clearly, from a blue chip ratio standpoint, Ohio State is clearly a far superior, quote unquote, superior roster. I still think Missouri has shown all year against LSU, not a great defense, but against LSU, uh, the way they dominated Tennessee's front seven, that's a very good, one of the best rushing defenses in the SEC. They hung with Georgia. They basically ran all over Kentucky. Like They've done what they wanted to do most of the season. I Even a fully formed Ohio State, I think, would, would have a tough time beating this team. The way they are now, I like Missouri. I do too. I think, first of all, I think we have to assume that some of the younger players for Ohio State will show up in this game. Uh, you know, whatever happens with Marvin Harrison Jr. and and some of these other younger from the receivers for Ohio State, we've got a lot of talented dudes and uh, backing those guys up. And, and I think Devin Brown uh, or you know Kineholtz, the the freshman, one of them, the motivated here is sort of a showcase game for them because we don't know who Ohio State's starting quarterback is going to be because a lot of the guys who entered the portal have picked other spots. So it's a chance for those uh, guys at Ohio State to show what they have for next season. Still think a lot of talented weapons, but even if Ohio State was at full strength, I think Missouri would give them a game. So yeah. I, I'm with you. I actually like Missouri in this game straight up. I think motivated Tigers cap off the season with a big win. And, and again, there's gonna, there's a couple of these games in the SEC this year. This is a this is a playoff game if we have a 12 team playoff. Yeah, I mean, this is basically like a seven nine matchup or something like that, seven eight matchup even. So this is a a, a really high level football game in in the in the future format that that we're heading to. And oh by the way, keep in mind Missouri doing a sneaky good job in the portal of kind of filling in some gaps. Uh, so how those players got to Missouri, not important. It's 2023. This is the nature of the game we live in here. Uh, the portal is about NIL. It's about money. It's about relationships. It's about all kinds of stuff. And Missouri's doing a pretty good job in the portal of what, as well of filling some of those gaps. But I don't know. A guy like Cody Schrader, 
Like this is you think that guy's not going to bust his ass in his final game? Like, come on. Like Brady I, Cook too. I mean, it's not his yeah. final game, but still, I expect Brady Cook to to be very motivated and to play well uh, in the Cod Bowl. I know, taking Missouri out right as well. Look at that, both of us agreeing on that. That's wild. Let's head to uh, Saturday, December thirtieth, the Chick Fil A Peach Bowl, of course, between Ole Miss and Penn State. This is also a game that in a twelve team playoff is absolutely like slated to happen. Two ten and two teams. Uh, both of which lost to only elite teams. Uh, Ole Miss is only two losses while not competitive against Alabama and against Georgia. Of course, Penn State losing to Michigan and Ohio State. So clearly a second tier class of teams, but no less interesting. What Ole Miss is doing off the field is fascinating, but the team itself is going to be under a lot of pressure to succeed next year, which means there's a lot of eyeballs uh, that are writing checks in Oxford right now that are going to be keeping an eye on this game in a big way because James Franklin also under some pressure. He he's, can't wait for the expanded playoff to get his 10 and two teams into the playoff every year. Uh, so this is a, again, while the outcome of this game does not need nearly as much as it would, if it's a playoff game, obviously uh, these are two coaches that are very geared towards a 12 team playoff. And this matchup is very, uh, very much a, a likely one elite level uh, line of scrimmage play for Penn state. How many of those guys are going to play? How how does Ole Miss look on offense? There's a lot of intrigue here for me personally about next season with both of these teams developing for next year. And I think there's a catapult factor here for both of these teams in this game. No question. I, I think of some of the games outside of the playoff, Ole Miss versus Penn State is very high on my list of games that I'm absolutely fascinated by and will 100% be tuning into. I think for the sort of the theme is sort of what you laid out there is that both of these teams uh, won a lot of games this year, but they also lost to the elite competition. And, and to be fair, I think it's fair to say that, you know, Penn State, while the scores maybe against Ohio State and Michigan were fairly close, it really wasn't like that competitive. Right. The gap right. seemed a little bit larger than what it was on the scoreboard. But that's also what it makes this game interesting. I think this is a fairly even game between two teams that lost to elite teams this year, and they go into next year with very high expectations because of what's coming back. And if you look at Ole Miss, the expectation is uh, Jackson Dart will be back, Quinshaw Judkins, they have an awesome transfer portal class. So you you look at the matchup of the Judkins, Dart, the weapons that Ole Miss has at receiver against Penn State's awesome defense. Manny Diaz is now the head coach at Duke. Um, Chop Robinson isn't going to play, so they are going to be a little bit shorthanded, but still strong at the line of scrimmage. We know Ole Miss early in the year struggled with the offensive line of run game. Yeah. Judkins got going eventually, so I'm fascinated just to see how some of these high-profile players, assuming they're in the game, are matching up in that battle. And then you've got Drew Aller for Penn State. I thought maybe played one of his better games against Michigan State in the last week of the regular season. Interested to see if he can build on that and that stretch. And they still have an interim OC before Andy Koltenecki from Kansas takes over and some receiver questions, but an opportunity for Drew Aller to build some momentum for next year. I think you know, I don't, I hesitate to use the word bowl bump, uh, but there's certainly a chance that one of these teams gets a lot of uh, publicity going into the offseason uh, based on what happens here. Well, two quarterbacks with extraordinary talent that still feel like there's another gear. I mean, yes. absolutely, maybe two more for Drew Aller, uh, but extremely talented. Dart maybe has one more big gear. He's a little bit more established, had a better season probably production-wise than Drew Aller did in terms of commanding the offense. I just am curious, like, how busy, how much time has Lane Kiffin spent on the game plan? Like, this guy this guy is busy recruiting his own players to stay, paying them. He's busy recruiting players out of the portal, paying them. He's busy recruiting uh, all the players in recruiting <laughs> that, that you have to do. Now, as a coach, like how much imagine if this was an actual playoff game, how much time do you actually have? Because Lane Kiffin's doing this unlike almost anybody else in college football, where he's like, no, we're going to keep everybody on our roster. We're going to go into the portal, take all your players, and we're going to sign a top 20 class in recruiting. Oh, by the way, while game planning for a playoff game, I, I don't know how you manage that. It's a little easier because this game is a is not a playoff game, obviously. But still, how much time is he spending game planning? <laughs> like... He's, he's, he's pulled in a million different directions. It's working for him right now. But, I mean, Penn State's a four-point, I guess a four-point favorite for a reason. Uh, if you watched the Texas Bowl last year between Texas Tech and Ole Miss, I think it was fair to say that Lane wasn't exactly all that into that game. 
I think I think he'll be no. I think he'll show up a little bit more this time because something you mentioned there. I think if we start thinking about next year in the twelve team playoff and Ole Miss is going for it, that uh, it's pretty yes. it's pretty obvious, and yes. they should. That with the core they have coming back, the transfers they're going for it. So the off season narratives can begin right here at the Peach Bowl. I don't think we should read a ton into these games, but I but suspect. That if you're Ole Miss and you can win this game, start to build oh, a little momentum. Here we the, go. The expectations hype, off the charts. The, right. The hype on the lane train <laughs> is going to be astronomical. So he might be ne- spending he might be spending as much time on Twitter as he will be on game planning <laughs> this week. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. He's been quite active. Yeah. I don't mind the like, look, we're Ole Miss. We don't normally have national championship expectations. But we've had two 10 wins regular seasons in the last couple of years with this coach and this structure of college football. Let's go. Let's go. I like yeah. it now. But that but again, if you beat Penn State, that that then comes with what you're talking about. Offseason hype and expectations, right. which means you got to deliver next year. So and and their schedule is manageable, by the way. Yes. Uh, without the divisions in the SEC, Ole Miss and Missouri are the two teams that I like to. I know that's easy to say because they both won 10 games this year. But I think those are two teams that come back largely intact with schedules that set up for them to challenge for playoff spots next year. And Ole Miss is financially, emotionally, psychologically, physically all in invested yes. in this offseason. It's it's fun to watch to see if it works. That's for sure. Almost as fun as what the game should be uh, coming up, of course, on Saturday, December 30th. Also on the 30th, the trans-perfect Music City Bowl right here in Nashville, Tennessee. Auburn and Maryland. I don't believe that Maryland has ever played in this game. One of the better offenses in Big Ten history with Talia Tangavaloa as the quarterback. That's right. Tua's little brother. They are a seven-point underdog, which is wild to me, to an Auburn football team that struggles to throw the forward pass in any conceivable way. Um, Quite the opposite of Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss. Hugh Freeze is surprisingly just like I don't know what to do in December he's doing a good job recruiting um but this is an interesting game there's gonna be a lot of Auburn fans they always travel extremely well to meet to, to here to Nashville to the Music City Bowl so I think it's obvious why the Music City Bowl wanted them I just don't know what to expect from the game itself this is I was surprised at the number Stephen at my at, at seven points I think that number would be lower if Tungvaloa was going to suit up for Maryland but I think you assume I think we have to assume that he's not He's opted out for sure. He's not coming, not going to be able to play in this game. So you turn to Billy Edwards and Cameron Edge as your quarterbacks for Maryland. That's a pretty steep drop in terms of yeah. production and experience here. So I think what was a winnable game for Maryland got a lot harder. Also, just from a pure matchup standpoint, Auburn's been pretty good at running the ball this year, whether it's been Peyton Thorne or Jarquez Hunter or one of the other running backs that they have. Maryland's 80th in the country in defensive success rate against the run (laughs) line of scrimmage for Maryland offensively and defensively have been a problem at times this year. So I think if you're Auburn, this is a game where your offensive line and your running backs should be able to take advantage of it. Narrative wise. I, I don't, you know, it's the music city bowl between two teams that are way outside the the playoff and, and top 25. I don't know. There's really a narrative here, but I do think it's interesting that Maryland started fast. They cooled off significantly down the stretch. Auburn was up and down, lost in New Mexico State, but they gave Georgia and Alabama a tough battle. So and and, and they're gonna and signed a top ten recruiting class. Yeah, they, there's a week. chance here for Maryland to maybe sort of erase some of that disappointment from the season by winning with the backup quarterback against an SEC team. And I think if you're Auburn. I think you're just sort of stacking some positive things here. The recruiting class, uh, you know, what you did against Georgia and Alabama, obviously the New Mexico State game wasn't great. Yeah. But there's a chance here to to cap a season that they were improved under uh, new new coach Hugh Freeze, chance to build on that this year. To me, this is all about vibes, and I think it actually sets up really well for Auburn. Yeah. Like I, the Music City Bowl has sort of elevated itself in the hierarchy within the SEC and the Big Ten pecking order. And it's going to continue to do that um, as Nashville is going to put a new stadium in place in a couple of years and you know probably get a national championship game here in town in that stadium. Not in that bowl game, but in that stadium. Point is, is that bowl game has gotten better. So I think because of their fan base, they went higher in the pecking order, which means they got a better bowl slot than they probably would normally have gotten in their situation, right, at 6-6 six and six right. or whatever. So I think... You you package that with we're playing a team that's not particularly great along the line of scrimmage. 
and is not playing without its star quarterback. I think these sets up for like a really nice vibe game for Auburn to head into the offseason. Hey, we just signed a top 10 class. We played well against Bama. We've erased the memory of the New Mexico State game. We're getting a bowl bid that's probably better than our team deserves by, by maybe one slot or two because our fans are great and we're going to show up and spend a lot of money in Nashville, which we love. Uh, and then, oh, by the way, you don't have to play the, the best player on the other team. I, I just think it sets up as a really... Yeah. Like it's, I think they're fortunate, not in like a lucky kind of way, but I think it sets up for a really good sort of vibe game for for Auburn and Hugh Freeze. So, totally agree with you, and it's also another reason why I don't know. I'd read a ton of, you know, some a ton takeaway from these games because, like you mentioned, if you think about how um, Alabama's in the playoff, you've got Georgia, you've got Ole Miss in the New Year's Six. The SEC teams kind of all moved up the pecking order yep. a bit, yep. which helps Auburn in a matchup like this. So it builds some offseason momentum. Yep. Uh, we'll have to see if it's real or not once the the transfer portal movement shakes out and finishes. We get a better look at their roster for next year. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Let's head down to Miami, of course, also on Saturday, December 30th, the Capital One Orange Bowl between Georgia and Florida State. One team that belonged in the playoff versus another team that belonged in the playoff. Uh, two very different caliber of football team, considering Jordan Travis's injury to Florida State. I, I, Jordan, you know, we talk about motivation, Stephen. This is a 14 point spread. Uh, I was told, had this been a playoff game, a real football game, and not just a, a bowl game, that it would have been even bigger 14 and a half, 15 points. I think s- some of that is where's Georgia's head at on this. Um, a lot of players leaving the roster. Carson Beck is, of course, coming back to the team, but there's a lot of four- and five-star kids who have left Georgia's team because, again, that's just what happens when you're that good and you're that loaded. Uh, but it's hard to make out what the matchups are. So many NFL players for both of these teams probably not going to play. So I, I don't – it's it's basically like whose backups are better <laughs> at, at this <laughs> point. Um, and, again, this is an Orange Bowl. This is a New Year's Six Bowl. And it's just very hard to tell anything about the matchups between these two teams other than Georgia elite recruiting Florida State not playing with best player. On paper, it sounds great, right? Like Florida yeah, State versus yeah. Georgia. And Undefeated. Undefeated. Yeah, it sounds like a great game. And I hope it is. But honestly, I think it's both these teams are probably pretty disappointed to be in this game. And I have no idea what to expect. Now, we have seen it this in this kind of scenario work out before where the team that was a huge underdog kind of could show up and, and win just because Georgia was the number one team. They got knocked out. Now, obviously, we know Florida State, uh, the, the situation with them. Uh, well, I was, Florida, I, Florida State's been on the other end of that in right. in a group of six bowl or group. Of, what do we in a New Year's six, six bowl? Like, didn't they lose? To, was it UCF that beat them the year? Houston. they? Oh, Houston. That's right. Houston beat them. And that's. Again, I don't think that's an anti-FSU stance. I think that is who was motivated to be there. Exactly. Uh, I think what I guess we could call this the third uh, CFP playoff game yeah. for the season. It, w- it would be nice to have both teams at full strength playing at full energy because it'd be a terrific matchup. But putting all that aside, I, one thing that stood out to me is just fascinating is that these two teams have not met in a regular season game since 1965. I just it just feels like Florida State and Georgia should play a lot more. Good stuff. Uh, but, that here we, here we are. It's the, the so it's been a while. Uh, the last two meetings were in bowl games, but last regular season meeting in 1965. So saying all that about this matchup, it's basically who's available. And I think if you're Georgia, <laughs> you got Carson Beck. You already have a big advantage over Florida State. T- Florida State should have Tate Rodemaker back, and I think Brock Glenn Rodemaker full month to get ready. They'll probably play better than they did late in the season, but so many guys for Florida state, whether it's Trey Benson, uh, Jaheim bell, Johnny Wilson, Jared verse, all opting out. We'll see who Georgia ends up with. But I think given the fact that Florida state is still shorthanded at quarterback. Yeah. I still think Georgia with Carson Beck just finds a way to win uh, here. So and, regardless of motivation for Florida state here, I just think Georgia just has too much. Well, and Georgia may not be interested in this game. And again, when, when I said, when we say that, when people say that, when I say it, when media say it, as a part of the analysis, all it takes is like five to eight to 10% less focus. It doesn't mean you don't care like you don't show up, like you still are trying to win the game. But in a game like this, with this highest stakes against a high quality co- foe like this, it only takes a, a small percentage point of, of, of lack of focus or lack of motivation. It only like it, to win this game by 14, Georgia needs to play 100%. And if all if you play at 90%, Florida State can beat you. 
I mean, so it's what's fascinating for me is there's so many young players for Georgia that are going to be really fighting for like Kirby Smart's love and attention. <laughs> like it's yeah. like Kirby. If I'm Kirby Smart, that is what I'm playing here. Is I'm playing the who wants to be a dog, like not literally a Georgia Bulldog, but like who are my dogs and who wants to be yeah. a dog next year on this football team? Who wants to start? Uh, a lot of players who were banged up at the end of the season that had they been healthy, maybe the outcome of the Alabama game was different. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like there's just that they have too much depth and too much talent. And, and Kirby is too good at this stuff that it feels like they will. While sure. They might be out partying on South beach a little too much, which both teams probably, <laughs> which we know affects the outcome of bowl games yeah. for a fact. History has shown us this for years, decades, all it takes is like, you know, one extra shot at tequila <laughs> on 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 South Beach to like play at 82 percent instead of 92 percent. And that might get you beat. And Florida State, again, if I'm Mike Norvell, I, it's it should not be hard to. I, I don't know. I, I'm with you. They're both disappointed. But if I'm Florida State, who is, you know, actively, again, trying to seek to get out of the ACC, which they're not going to be able to do. I, I don't. It should not be hard to motivate the Seminoles. It shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be hard, but I think it's also fair to wonder when you're missing your best pass rusher, your best running back, uh, one of your best pass catchers. I, I, we don't, I don't think Keon Coleman has officially de- declared one way or the other as we're recording this, whether he's going to play or not. But you, I guess you get my point is that. Oh, sure. Florida, they're, they're Florida State, yeah. yeah, I mean, Florida State was already going to be an underdog if they played right. Georgia at full strength. And now you're taking away five. Oh, no, I, I, oh I'm picking. Players, so. I'm picking yeah. Georgia. I'm just yeah, saying. too. I'm just saying, if I'm Mike Norvell, it shouldn't be hard. Sure. Look at look at what college football did to you. Look at what sure. the committee did to you. Look at all the press. Look at all the coverage. Look at all the talk. And Georgia, of course, I, I actually think Georgia's the team that should be most pissed off about not being in the playoff. We've talked about it a lot. But like that's a harder ask, I think, of Georgia um, than it is for Florida State. They kind of have dealt with the the lack of their quarterback for a couple of like weeks and weeks and weeks now. So I think they're a little bit more prepared for that, that sort of uh, environment. But I don't think they're good enough to beat Georgia, so I'll take the dogs. But uh, should not be hard for Mike Norvell to to motivate the Seminoles in this matchup. That is for sure. All right, January first, we head to New Year's twenty twenty four Monday. The Relia Quest Bowl gets us started in Tampa Bay, Wisconsin versus LSU. Jaden Daniels, of course, not going to play, so the Garrett Nussmeyer era is underway. And I think one of the most interesting storylines in all of SEC bowl season is a guy like Garrett Nussmeyer getting to start every single day as the number one guy for 15 straight practices, working with the number ones, regardless of what receivers are out there uh, against a Wisconsin team that from a talent standpoint is vastly overmatched by an LSU team. That's got to find a lot of answers at a lot of positions for next year. If Brian Kelly wants to continue because they're going to be replacing a lot of people at LSU in key positions all over both sides of the ball, 10 point favorite, the LSU Tigers, this to me is exclusively about Garrett Nussmeyer and the new era of LSU football. 100%. I think one of the early kind of storylines to watch next year in the SEC is how good the quarterback play in this league could be next year. Because if you add Quinn Ewers and, or whether it's Quinn Ewers or Arch Manning, or, and we think Jackson Arnold could be pretty good, Jalen Milrose back, Carson Beck is back, uh, and, and Garrett Nussmeyer has shown a lot. Jackson too. Dart. Jackson Dart, Connor Wigman. I mean, we could, you know, Nico in Tennessee. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there's a it's a really strong year potentially for quarterbacks in the SEC. So we've seen some good things out of Nussmeyer. We saw it last year in the SEC championship and at other times he's played well. And it looks like he's going to have probably uh, Malik Neighbors and Brian Thomas here. So if that's the case, I think it's going to be hard for Wisconsin to keep up. And maybe even without one of those receivers or both, it's still hard uh, for Wisconsin to keep up, but this is a showcase game for Nussmeyer. It'll show us just maybe how far he's progressed since last season. Just how well he performs is something intriguing to me about the bowl season. I thought Wisconsin underachieved this year a little bit. Uh, Luke Fickle's first year, they won't have Braylon Allen. They've had some injuries at quarterback and receiver, so they've got to find a way to uh, probably slow this game down a little bit. I know with Longo and the tempo that Wisconsin wants to use, a little different than previous years. But they're going to have to find a way, I think, to slow down Nussmeyer and uh, yep. those LSU receivers. I think this is a tough matchup for Wisconsin. I think one of the most important things to remember, because I think a lot of people's image of Garrett Nussmeyer is coming in for Jaden Daniels against Alabama on the road in a very difficult and adverse situation. And a quarterback who is coming off the bench 
is a totally different player yes. than when it, than when he has been running with the ones for weeks. It's just a different mental headspace for a quarterback. And I think we're going to see the best version of Garrett Nussmeyer. Not the least, like, obviously, if, if he's got both of his receivers, I think Wisconsin's defense is vastly overmatched. Now, Fickle, very good defensive mind, will probably have a really good scheme in place. Uh, but I think from an athleticism standpoint in space, there is no matchup here for Wisconsin that is a good one. And again, if neighbors and, and Thomas are playing, it, all bets are off here. And I want to, and frankly, if I'm LSU, open it up. Open it yeah. up. Let let him throw. I know they need to figure out some balance next year because Dayton Daniels has been their running game the last two years, and they need to figure that part out because a big part of Saban and Les Miles and Coach O's success at LSU was the ability to run the football, and they have not had a traditional running game in Baton Rouge uh, under Brian Kelly. Jaden Daniels has been that. But I think this is not a game to try to find that. I think this is you need Garrett. I want Garrett Nussmeyer chucking it around 43 times. Like, just give him as many reps as possible because it's going to make him better next year. Agree. I think it's a great way to sum up this game. I do think for, you know, for Wisconsin, if we want to flip it around, like in terms of motivation, if they win this game, I think maybe a little bit of a, you know, changing of the narrative. They finish the season on a high note after the ups and downs of this year. So I, LSU probably a little bit disappointed to be in this game. I think Wisconsin fans uh, will descend in Tampa probably well. That'd be a strong showing of Badgers uh, fans down there. But uh, we know LSU's defense has been an issue all season. So there is the door is open, I think, here for Wisconsin to make things interesting. But to your point, Nussmeyer and LSU open it up. And I think they got yeah. a chance to win this game easily. Uh, a, a rematch of a Wisconsin LSU game that took place in Lambeau Field a couple of years ago, which my father was at. And you want to know what? My father will be. In Tampa as well. <laughs> um, also, okay, let's head January 1st. The Cheez-It Bowl, the Citrus Bowl in Orlando, Iowa versus Tennessee. Talk about contrasting styles. An offense that wants to go as fast as humanly possible versus an offense that cannot accomplish anything. But, man, Iowa's defense, absolutely sp uh, uh, spectacular. Uh, Phil Parker, the defensive coordinator, is your Broyles assistant coach of the year, award winner. I, I don't know, uh, you know, if I'm Tennessee – Joe Milton is one of those guys that doesn't sit out because it's like, I know he's going to be in the senior bowl and he's going to have a chance to prove all that skill to the NFL scouts, but like nothing on his tape says that he's an NFL quarterback from like a processing and accuracy standpoint, but he doesn't strike me as a guy that sits out a game like this. But at the same time, if I'm a Tennessee fan, I, I, I desperately want the next guy a la Garrett Nussmeyer at, at LSU um, and a few others uh, around the sec, like Jackson Arnold at Oklahoma, for example, I want the next guy to get as many reps as possible. The new redshirt rule helps Tennessee because Nico Iamaleava can play as much as he wants in this game, and he's still a redshirt freshman next year. I want him taking as many reps as possible. So you got to balance sending your veteran out as a senior who's been around a long time versus what's best for the program next year. And what's best for the program next year is a very good test against a very good Iowa defense for a young player like Nico. It's a really good opportunity for Josh Heupel to get him some good reps. I don't know what he's going to do, though. I don't know what the balance is going to be. You know, it's it's an interesting question, because if you're Tennessee, do you put Nico out there against Iowa, which is a very, very good defense, and you sort of hurt his confidence if he struggles? I think the, the flip side of that is you got a month to get ready for this game. So I, I know Iowa's still a tough defense no matter how much time you have to prepare, but maybe there's an extended look that you could get for him in this game and you sort of either build confidence for next season or you see maybe some things that he needs to work on going into spring practice. But there is no doubt that he is the future for Tennessee, but I think the thing that you keep getting out of Tennessee this year is how much of a team leader, how much confidence they have in Joe Milton to finish. Yeah. They, the staff has invested a lot of time in his development. So he, he will, I would imagine, start and try to finish uh, this game. But I would personally like to see Nico. But I think to your point, on this matchup, I think the most, it is the biggest like contrast in styles. Iowa will play a very slow, deliberate, defensive, punting game, and they'll try to play field position. Torrey Taylor from Iowa is an awesome punter. They will just, this is the game they will try to play. And because they've had a ton of injuries on offense and we know their offensive issues in Tennessee should just simply just try to put as many points on the board early and get Iowa behind and force them out of it. And they're screwed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I don't, if Iowa goes behind by like 14, 13 points, I think it's going to be really hard for them to catch up. If Iowa drags Tennessee into a lower scoring game, we got a game for four quarters then. 
Well, Tennessee's eight and a half point favorite. I will say this about the confidence of a young player. If your confidence as a young player is broken by a, a second tier bowl performance against Iowa in an exhibition game, then you are not quarterback one in the SEC. So I am, if I'm Josh Heupel and I'm that coaching staff, I am not concerned about where Nico Yamaleava is mentally. Because if he, if you throw him out there and you, and I was really great and he has a poor performance, I, I don't care what the message boards say. I don't care what Twitter says. None of that matters. If you are truly QB1 in the SEC, all that does is motivate you. All that does is make you better. All that does is give you the learning experience to get better next season. If, if a second tier bowl performance against Iowa breaks your confidence permanently, then you ain't the guy. So I'm, I want to see him as much as possible if I'm a Tennessee fan. But I get it. They're loyal to their guy. And maybe it wasn't a great investment to invest that much in Joe Milton. <laughs> but hey, there's, I, there's, no, there's no better test than Iowa's defense. I agree. That's why that's why um, it's so perfect. It's yeah. so perfect for Josh Heifel. Like how many defenses in the SEC are truly better from a fundamental standpoint that are going to teach you how to play the game at the highest possible level better than Iowa? I mean, certainly there's a couple, Georgia, Alabama, maybe. But like by and large, the way Iowa plays the game, so fundamentally sound, gap sound, they're going to be good against the run game, against Tennessee's very good run game. I, I, I don't know. I think it's a perfect opportunity. Like every third series, every fourth series, I would want Nico. Or maybe, you know, first quarter's Joe, second quarter's Nico, third and fourth quarter's Joe. Like, But just give the young kids some reps. It's super, super important for the development over the long term. So you're taking the balls. I take it. <laughs> I am taking Tennessee. I think just simply the offensive firepower of Tennessee. Just I think Iowa's defense will play well, but to give me Tennessee, they are four and one by the way in uh, previous Citrus Bowl appearances. So good stat there to end the conversation. Good job. Let's head to the college football playoff here. Monday, January first, the Rose Bowl, Alabama versus Michigan. Michigan still a two point favorite at time of taping over Alabama. Some sharp money came in early on Bama, cut that line down, but it stayed right about two points, which I find to be very, very interesting. And so this is a real football game. <laughs> this is a real playoff game where we've got real schematic matchups, real games within the game. Uh, so I'm going to start with where does Michigan have an advantage? Athletic talent, you know, strength on strength. Where is Michigan's advantage over an Alabama team that we saw have have tough time protect the quarterback at times on the offensive line. They they haven't run the ball great all year, but they did at the end of the season. Where is Michigan's uh, you, you know uh, matchup advantage over Alabama? It's a really good question. Um, I don't know that there is a glaring one. Would you agree with that? Like I I think uh, I this is why I'm some... asking you the questions. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like if you were just to compare. Like running backs, would I rather have Blake Corm and Donovan Edwards? Of course, Alabama's pretty talented there. Um, you know, like Colston Loveland at tight end. Like I would probably Alabama with Nia Black and some of the other guys they got. They got a good group, but I would love to have Colston Loveland. I think Michigan's offensive line is probably graded out better in some of the advanced metrics. Now, I don't think it's as good as it was last year, and I think the Penn State game showed that. They needed to devote a little bit more attention to some of the tackles, or they were just going to get McCarthy sacked. Um, but they were good on the run. So I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't see a glaring edge here for Michigan on paper. Like I, I think you could find some small areas, but I don't know that there's a specific matchup that they, they could take advantage of. Now, I think if you want to maybe look at it in a bigger picture level, Milrow struggled early in that game against Georgia to get into his rhythm. And I think the passing situation, they was not as they were not executing quite the high the level they wanted to. Sometimes they can be a little bit too big play dependent. Now, so I think the question for Michigan is can you take that away and force him to be sort of the intermediate stuff? That may that may be where Michigan thrives because obviously their, their defense is outstanding from uh, you know defensive line, linebacker, secondary, right. uh, clearly one of the best in the country uh this season. So I don't know if that answers your question or well, it's funny. You you went sort of like position group combined or or like matched up against another position group who's better and i and i kind of agree with where with how you assess that but the problem is is that every time i find a strength for michigan it matches up generally with a strength of alabama 
Like if their running game with Blake Corum and the offensive line is their their bread and butter, which it is under Jim Harbaugh, well, what's Alabama's biggest strength? It's it's their front seven. It's their pass rush. It's Dallas Turner. It's it's all those guys. And frankly, I think Alabama's corners, while Arnold gives up some big plays, I, I mean, you've got Caleb Downs is really blossoming. Like you've got you've got some really talented secondary players for Alabama who are incredibly athletic. There is nobody for Michigan in space that is more athletic than those Alabama defensive backs. I do think you could look at Michigan's front seven and you could say, all right, where can we take advantage of an Alabama offensive line that on occasion has had some trouble this year, both establishing the run and protecting Jalen Milrow? That's the one area where I would say, come up with something and and use those the, the very, like, like you said, not a lot of weaknesses for Michigan on defense at any position. They've got some really versatile defensive backs that they like to roll up into the box and play a bunch of different roles with. I, like it is, the, I want to see something interesting and creative from their defense. To your point, Jalen Milrow struggles in the intermediate game. We've also seen him, like I think it was the, the the Tennessee game where they just dominated through the intermediate game. The Texas A&M game, big plays to Burton in the intermediate game. Like they've also made some plays. I mean, Milrow's last few drives against Georgia were a, a clinic on check down, check down, check down, take what the defense gives you. I, I I don't see how Michigan ultimately stops Jalen Milrow, the individual. I think he's too he's on too much of a roll. You give Saban a month to prepare. I, I I don't know. I'm gonna have an angle for why I could pick Michigan or why somebody could in theory pick Michigan. I've got a theory on how that'll work, and it's not about matchups, but the only one I can find is maybe the front seven for Michigan going up against that Alabama offensive line. Yeah, I think maybe if you're Michigan, the key is third and seven, third and eight. Like if you can live sort of in that space and force Milrow to be consistent within every down in the game, every third down situation, and, and maybe there's a path there. And if you could take away uh, some of the big plays that we've seen too. I do think there is a question for me. When you look at Michigan this season, executing in the passing game against good defenses, if you look at their last four opponents, Penn State, throw, I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily consider Maryland in this conversation, but Penn State, Maryland, Ohio State, and Iowa, they have not had more than 190 passing yards in any of those games. Now they ran the ball over Penn State, so doesn't stats don't necessarily translate into to wins. But I do think it is fair to wonder, like to your point, who for Michigan is going to be able to win enough and battles in space to be one able to on execute? ones? Yeah. Like, Where are they going to win one on ones? I think Roman Wilson. I think uh, Colston okay. Loveland are going to be are going to make some plays in this game. But you're going to need your uh, you know kind of your supplemental pieces, whether it's Morgan, whether it's Cornelius Johnson, uh, maybe Donovan Edwards catching some passes in space and making something happen. We did see it early in the season. I think Alabama's secondary was a little vulnerable at times, but I think they've cleaned a lot of that up and they've gotten better over the course of the season. So I, to me, I think Michigan's physicality and defense is going to carry them a long way here. I just don't know they can line up and, and run it. And, or I don't know if there's enough there with McCarthy in his passing game to be able to win a matchup like this. Yeah, I think it's if it's a low-scoring, ugly game that's brought into the mud, then I think Michigan benefits. And I think they can do that. Problem is Alabama's won a bunch of those games against really good offenses like Georgia, low-scoring. Ole Miss, low-scoring. Shut down Tennessee in the second half. Pretty good offense there. I, they they can they can play that style. And what's funny about, you mentioned Michigan, for, for you SEC fans and for Alabama fans that don't know, Michigan beat Penn State without Jim Harbaugh by running the ball 30 consecutive times from the middle of the second quarter to the end of the game, which I believe was trolling all of college football against a Penn State defense that's got a bunch of NFL players on it. One of the better defenses in the country, and they did not even need its quarterback, much less its head coach in that game. So here's my case for Michigan. Weird stuff happens in college football when you have been discounted and disrespected for as long as Michigan has on the national stage. They all they have the sort of America's team garbage thing, which is complete nonsense, but like they have the us against the world thing baked into their their storyline this year, which I think helps. They've been to the playoff two consecutive years. They got pushed around by a historically great Georgia team two years ago. They completely overlooked TCU, should have won that football game, are the better team. They've now been through all of the wars. They have the scars to show for it. And McCarthy has gotten better. J.J. McCarthy, the quarterback, has gotten better. To me, occasionally, a team 
just overachieves. And honestly, it's not a huge overachievement here for the number one team in the nation to beat Alabama, who's had some flaws. Occasionally, when a team just plays its perfect football game because it is done with the conversation that has swirled around their team, that is when weird stuff happens. And I saw it in 2014 when Ohio State beat Alabama in the first round of the playoff as like a 10-point favorite in that game. I saw it in 2 when Ohio State beat uh, Miami with, with Craig Krenzel and Maurice Claret. I saw it when Texas said enough is enough in 05. USC had been dominating college football, had the superior roster. Uh, and and uh, Clemson did it when they lost to Alabama in 2015, came back in 2016. They didn't lose the game getting off the bus. And that sort of mental background is, to me, the best argument for Michigan to win the game is enough is enough. We got a half a championship in 97. We have not won an outright national championship in like 70 years. It's been three years of this garbage all year. People complaining that Harbaugh's a cheater. That to me is the motivational like edge that Michigan needs to get over the hump and win the whole thing. That That's my case for Michigan. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Uh, my counter to that would be if the, you know, as, as much as I enjoyed the Penn state pushing or Michigan pushing around Penn state in that game with the rushing attempts and how enjoyable of a stat that is Michigan's offensive tackles have struggled at times, you know, against the past. We saw this in this game uh, against that Penn state game. How are they going to block Chris Braswell? How are they going to block Dallas Turner? Because if you devote extra attention to those guys, that's going to be a problem in, in other areas. So I, I think to your point, the angle for this game. And it's, it's why I'm a little surprised that Michigan is favored. I've, I've just assumed that Alabama would be like a three point favorite when this matchup yep. was announced. Yep. I just think it is. It's that X factor of, Hey, us against the world. Yep. Our ball was suspended. He's back for this game. There's a ton of guys on this team who've lost the last couple of years in the playoffs. This might be their last dance, so to speak, uh, with all this team together because of who they're going to lose and who knows what Harbaugh is going to do next year. So mm-hmm. that factor and a flawed but really good Alabama team, that's your angle for for the Wolverines to win. Right. This is not the most dominant Alabama team we've seen. Right. And this could be the best Michigan team we've seen. So, yes, that's fair. Um, there you go. I mean, I think I think that is absolutely the angle. I'm taking the Alabama Crimson Tide to win outright. I am. I am as well. I like Alabama to win <laughs> after all that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to the nightcap. The last game, of course, future tennis, future SEC uh, football program, the University of Texas. They are officially back, of course, playing the Washington Huskies four and a half point favorite in the Sugar Bowl in the college football playoff semifinal. Um, obviously, we could have an all SEC national championship with Texas and Alabama. We could have an all Big Ten national championship with Washington and Michigan. Washington is a tough team to figure out here. They are one of the lowest rated teams from a recruiting re- average standpoint to ever make the playoff. Ironically, their average recruiting class over the last five years, which certainly doesn't take into account the portal and, and all that other stuff, 34th in the nation, identical to that of TCU. All season long, we have explained, or at least I have had, had the theory, that Washington is TCU. Close games the entire season. Historically great quarterback. Really brilliant offensive-minded head coach. Purple. <laughs> like yeah. all The similarities. Be- and now, of course, their average recruiting ranking over the last five seasons, identical to that of TCU, 34th in the nation. Texas, number five, top five recruiting class, which is what you have to be to win the national championship. Only one team has ever won the national title in the playoff era with an average recruiting class outside of the top 10. That was Clemson in 2016 with Deshaun Watson. This Texas team is in the range. They have the talent. They've got the quarterback. They've got the offensive scheme. They've got the defensive line. But Washington has this thing that TCU had last year that got them into the national championship game. I I have honestly no clue (laughs) what's going to happen in this football game. I cannot wait for the Sugar Bowl. I think I can tell you what's going to happen, or at least it's what I hope will happen. I hope it's an awesome game because I think the potential is there for it. Uh, I know Texas is favored. But that plays right into what Washington has had to deal with all season. Sort of disrespect that they're gonna their defense isn't, you know, this defense is gonna cause them to lose a game at some point. No, all they do is go out and win 13 and 0. They beat Oregon twice, and they're in the college football playoff with a quarterback that, that finished, you know, the top three of Heisman voting. So I think the disrespect card could certainly be played here by Washington. And all it would take with Michael Penix to get hot in two games 
And their defense to do exactly what they did down the stretch is make a timely stop or two, and they're winning the national championship. I think they can win it all if they get by uh, Texas in, in the in the uh, in the college football playoffs. So what a what a story if Washington wins the national championship. It, hey, I don't think it's that far fetched considering the firepower that this team has. But who, who who's the better offensive mind? And and are they are they two of the best in the country right now? Kalen DeBoer and Steve Sarkeesian. I would probably go with Sarkeesian. But yes, they are two of the best in college football, without question. I think that that brings me to kind of think what we should expect. I think we should expect a lot of points. I think this will be kind of a higher scoring game. The other one's probably going to be a little bit more low scoring between Alabama and Michigan. But I think this could be a fun kind of back and forth game. You've got Penix, you know, his receivers with Adunze, McMillan and, and all those guys. They're going to move the ball against a Texas team that has struggled to give up big plays in the passing game. They've had some injuries there, but has been an issue this season. I love the matchup in the, in the line of scrimmage. How is Washington going to block uh, Murphy and Sweat, those two defensive linemen that are massive, and they're going to be hard to move. Even if they don't get a sack or tackle for loss, it's just their pressure could be really disruptive to the whole operation of Washington offensively. And the other factor is, you know, who is getting touchdowns and who is kicking field goals? Because we've seen yeah. Texas has had real trouble this year scoring in the red zone. Washington does a great job. When they get into the red zone, they score touchdowns. So I think in a game where something small could add up, as funny as it sounds, like red zone, touchdown percentage, and turnovers could play a huge role in what happens. Finishing drives. Points per trip inside the 40. There's also an element that's like the opposite of the Washington factor here, which is intangibles, which is like they just figure out ways to win. Their offense doesn't score a touchdown against Arizona State, but a pick six does. Uh, I thought Ryan Grubb's game plan, the offensive coordinator for Washington against Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game was absolutely brilliant. It was run the football with Dylan Johnson on the edges. Get to the outside. If you watch that game, super creative with how they got the football to the edge of the Oregon defense. I think you have to do that again because Texas – you cannot run right at those two te defensive tackles. I don't think you can do that. So Texas has to know that. <laughs> Washington has to know that. What is the counterpunch in the pregame strategy? I think that is what's going to be really interesting. And frankly, the intangible thing, as I was saying, it's hard to, like, this is not fair to Texas, to Steve Sarkeesian, to Quinn Ewers, or to any of the players on that Texas team. There's still this weird Texas energy. You know what I mean? Like, there's this, like... Like on paper, Texas should win the football game. On paper, Texas is way better defensively. On paper, Texas is far more talented, one to eighty-five by a mile. Like there, there is, like if this was Alabama, if the name was Alabama or Georgia or Ohio State, they'd be a. I think they'd be an eight-point favorite or a nine-point favorite. But I think there's this weird, like, well, do we really buy into Texas yet? Are they good enough to handle this moment? Being on this stage, they have not been on this stage since two thousand and nine. It's been a long time for Texas since they've been here. Here's the other thing. I have a bunch of friends of mine texting me who are diehard Texas fans. Like, what, what is taking so long? And I'm like, guys, this is how the football playoff works. Welcome to the party, Texas. Like, they just don't. It's so new to them. And again, not like Washington's been there a ton, but they've been to the playoff before. Yeah. So uh, to me, there's like a the gravity of the situation I don't think is going to affect Washington. I I. It certainly didn't affect Texas in the Big 12 championship game, especially in the first half where they dropped 49 and like, you know, whatever, like a, like 500 yards of offense and like a half of football. But this is different. You've had a month to think about it. You've had a month of people patting you on the back. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's the one weird intangible factor here is because if Texas plays its best game and Washington plays its best game, I think it's a great game. It's a shootout, but Texas wins. But is there this element of like, and again, maybe we shouldn't doubt Sarkeesian and this is, of all the the things we could say about like there's things about Steve Sarkeesian in his past you can you can have some fun with as a punchline you know the way things ended at USC with personal addiction problems you know he left Washington and Chris Peterson did a better job Steve Sarkeesian against his former team like there's a lot of stuff but like all he's done in 3 years is remove the noise around the Texas program get him to 12 and 1 into the playoff and a Big 12 championship it, like immediately in three years, he's gotten Texas back to where they belong. And so part of me is like, should I even be doubting him at all? But there's that little kernel of like, oh, it's still Texas. They, they could screw it up. <laughs> it, it's all, it's Whether it's fair or not, 
I think there will be a contingent of media or just other pundits, fans, whatever you want to say, that are probably just like, yeah, Texas is back. Sure. Like, we'll believe it when we see it. Right. That means even though they're the next championship, even though they just won a Big 12 and beat Alabama on the road yeah. and they're 12 and one. Like, yeah, I agree. I, I think the flip side argument would be they are already like in that they, they're, they're a totally different program because right. look at how yeah, they went on the road and beat Alabama. They right. won the Big 12 championship game. Just right. look at the roster talent the last couple of years. So if they lose this game, I don't think it's I don't think it's an indictment of the, the Texas is back whole conversation, how it, it could be really negative for them. I think this is just a really good Washington team that. Yeah going to give them a lot of trouble also should note that dylan johnson probably had one of the quietest like 1000 yard seasons yeah, i can yeah. remember uh in the pac 12 so looking forward to this, this will be a high scoring game and and he did it against oregon hurt too and yeah. and to, to your point it's very fair to point out i i don't th- if washington wins i don't think it's because texas chokes i think it's because washington yes. is a worthy team that is undefeated for a reason and that proved a lot of people like me wrong throughout the course of the year and continues to prove people like me wrong uh, so I don't want to sit here and, and sound like it's not th- that Washington wouldn't deserve credit. They they absolutely deserve credit if they win the game. I think they will have earned it. I think they're good enough to win the game. I, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to take Texas, I guess. But I, I don't know. I think this is the healthiest Washington is going to be all season. Some of their defensive issues were because they were banged up all year. Great safeties now fully healthy. Brandon Trice, fully healthy. Defensive edge, fully healthy. Dylan Johnson, fully healthy. Like, I just think Washington's going to be at its peak. So it kind of comes down to which team can execute. And I know that sounds cheesy and cliche, but I I think they're both really great offenses about execution and whichever quarterback executes better. I I don't know. Penix has been more consistent. So, yeah, I think the word timely almost like sums up like the way I think this game could be won or lost. And we talked about it earlier, three versus seven. Who's giving up a big play? Who isn't? Um, who's yep. got the most havoc plays, whether it's a sack, a tackle for loss, a, a forced turnover? In a game like this, maybe special teams, uh, like a big return or something, it feels like one or two big plays might yep. decide it. Yep. I love the fact Washington's defense has been so timely down the stretch. Mohammed, ZTF, Trice, they've all stepped up. I just think Texas is just a little bit better here. We're both taking Texas. It's I think it's going to be a good a heck of a semifinal, but it give me Texas. You got the Washington shirt on too. All right, um, there is our SEC bowl preview for 2023 and 2024. And I want to remind everybody here at the end. By the way, uh, make sure you follow uh, Stephen on Twitter, uh, Twitter.com. That's Athlon at Athlon Stephen. Of course, all CFB three six five on the YouTube page. You can get to me at four four sports zero. That's four forty sports. Uh, on the YouTube page. I want to remind everybody in the SEC, just because you are you have the best bowl record or the worst bowl record doesn't mean you're a good conference or a bad conference. The fact that the SEC has won 18 consecutive NFL drafts, almost all of the national championships, and have the most fan support, that is what makes the SEC the best conference, not your bowl record. Your bowl record does not matter. Not for any conference. Not for the SEC. If you go 9-0, you're not the best conference because of that. You're the best conference because you have all the championships. And and all of the NFL players. So that is why. So, Stephen, thank you, man. Uh, happy holidays to you and yours. Thanks for hanging out to everybody. Rate, review, subscribe. Thanks for listening. My name is Braden Gall. This has been the SEC Bowl Preview for 2023 and 2024. We'll talk to you next time.